Greetings to you all in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ from the saints at Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. It's a joy to be with you this morning. It was a joy to be with many of you yesterday at the Family and Technology Seminar. Uh, we're so grateful for our partnership with you in the gospel as we pray for you, as we thank God for your church, and as we walk alongside. Uh, we're thankful for the bonds of affection that knit us together. Even though I don't know many of you personally, uh, we're brothers and sisters in Christ. We say, serve the same Lord and it is a joy to be with you this morning. Our world today is going through what can only be described as a collective identity crisis. Answers to questions that have been taken for granted for millennia. Who am I? Who are we? Are increasingly contested. Am I a man or a woman? People are asking. What are my pronouns? And so forth. And even if you're not asking these questions for yourself, other people are asking and answering them for you. You are your race, they say. You are your politics. You are a victim. You are the oppressor. See, even until a few decades ago, we took identity as something that was fixed, and God-given. It was conferred on us externally. I am created as a man, and I am created to be a man. I am the husband of Claire, the son of Joseph, the father of Theodore and Flavius. That's who I am. It's a God-given gift and something to live within. Today, we're told that identity is an internally determined reality. Be who you want to be. Do whatever you want to do. But as Brad Pitt asks Edward Norton in the movie Fight Club, how's that working out for you? The results are all around. Depression is up. Drug and alcohol-related deaths, so-called deaths of despair, are up. Racial, political strife, up. And if you're a Christian, this should not come as surprising at all. The biblical theological answer is that the only way to know who we are, really, is to know who God is. The moment we push God out of the picture and say, I will define myself apart from God is when we lose who we are. And to recover who we are, we need to turn first to God. And the only way we see who we are is in the light of beholding God's holiness. And though our situation is unprecedented, it is not unique. You see, the same kind of collective identity crisis was constantly befalling God's people throughout the Scriptures. In Isaiah's day, what they needed then and what we need today is to recover a vision of God himself. And for that, we turn in our Bibles this morning to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. Here we find the southern kingdom of Judah on the verge of a national crisis. The king has just died, we read in verse 1. The year is 740 BC and the nation is on the brink of war. The northern kingdom of, of Israel had been taken into exile, or would be taken into exile just 18 years later. And the Lord has commissioned his prophet Isaiah to send him to the people of Judah and tell them that unless they repent, unless they recognize who God is and turn from their sins, they will encounter the same fate and go into exile. And what Isaiah tells us in, in this chapter is that in their time of crisis, what God's people need most is to recognize 
God's holiness, their sinfulness, to receive God's mercy. They need to recognize God's holiness. They need to reckon with their own sinfulness in order to receive God's mercy. Let me read to us again from Isaiah chapter 6. This is on page 571 of your pew Bibles. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me! I am lost! I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then, one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What do God's people need most in the time of crisis? To recognize God's holiness, to reckon with their sinfulness, and to receive God's mercy. Those are my three points for us this morning. I pray that as we study this passage together, God will give us greater fear of His holiness and greater appreciation of His holy mercy. The first thing we see in this passage is that what God's people need most in a time of crisis is to see God's holiness, to recognize His holiness. That's point one. Recognize God's holiness. That's what God's people needed in Isaiah's day. That's what we need today. And to, to do this, God gives Isaiah this extraordinary vision of himself. The main thing that Isaiah sees about God in this passage is that God is holy. He sees this heavenly scene of the Lord exalted on a throne. He sees these angelic creatures called seraphim calling out in ceaseless song, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And if those words sound familiar to you, those are the same words that we read earlier in the service from Revelation chapter 4, where we see that this song is going on forever and ever and ever around the throne. God seems to have created these angels for the specific purpose of calling out ceaseless praise to the Lord. Now, to fathom the weight of what is going on here, you need to understand something about Hebrew poetry. See, the Hebrew poets didn't use spelling, uh, conventional spelling that we use today, such as exclamation marks or periods or underlining or italicizing in order to make a point. If you wanted to emphasize something in the Hebrew language, the way you did that was by repetition. Repeating the word was the way you drew attention and emphasis. That's why in the Gospels you often see Jesus saying something like, Verily, verily, or truly, truly, I say to you. He's saying, wake up, pay attention. This is really important, what I'm about to say. And if you look, the only place in all of Scripture 
that an attribute of God is repeated in the threefold formula is God's holiness. It's right here in Isaiah 6. And then in Revelation 4, this is the only attribute of God that is given the threefold emphasis. The ceaseless song of the seraphim around the throne is that God is holy, holy, holy. And this is telling us something very important about the nature of God. You see, nowhere in all of Scripture is God ever described as love, love, or mercy, mercy. The superlative status is reserved for the attribute of holiness. And that's because holiness isn't just one of God's attributes. It is the unifying principle beneath all of God's attributes. God's love is a holy love. And that's what makes it love. God's mercy is a holy mercy. God's judgment is a holy judgment. What is God's holiness? God's holiness is His complete and absolute moral purity and His absolute distance from fallen creatures. Those are the two aspects of holiness. It's moral purity and separation. And we see both of these in the passage. Notice first God's absolute moral purity. In verse 2, we're introduced to the seraphim, these angelic beings created for the sole purpose of proclaiming God's holiness. And what do they do? Even they cannot bear to stand in God's presence without covering their faces. You see, they have six wings, and with two they fly, but with two they shield their eyes. With two they cover their feet, symbolizing their creatureliness, as if to cover their feet in shame in the presence of God. I kind of like how the Lord commanded Moses, take off your feet. You're standing on holy ground. But what about their faces? Well, 1 Timothy 6.16 says that God dwells in unapproachable light whom no one has seen or ever can see. Kids, have you ever tried to go out in the middle of the day, maybe in the summer, cloudless day, and stare up at the sun. How long can you look at the sun for before you have to look away? You can't do it. The sun is so bright in all its rays. We have to close our eyes. We have to shield our eyes. We wear sunglasses or hats because we can't stand the radiance of the sun. Now you realize the sun is not all that bright in comparison with all of God's creation. About 10 years ago, scientists discovered a star called S. Doradus, about 160,000 light years away. That is 10 million times brighter than the sun. 10 million times brighter than the sun. Friends, the light of S. Doradus cannot even begin to compare with the light of the radiance of the glory of God. He's the one who created it. And he created other stars that we don't even know of. And his light and his radiance is so powerful that the angels cloud their faces. They cover them because of his brightness. That is God's holiness, his absolute moral purity. 
You remember what God tells Moses in Exodus 33 when Moses asks to behold God's glory. You cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. So even the seraphim, whose radiance we cannot endure, cover their faces in the presence of the Lord. So we see God's holiness consists in His absolute moral purity, but it also consists in the distance between God and His creatures. That's what God's holiness is, His moral purity and His distance, His separation. Did you notice where God is in the passage? Verse 1, His throne is high and lifted up. This is God's transcendence. He is totally distinct and separate from all created things. He sits enthroned above the cherubim, Psalm 99 says. And in verse, in verse 4, in response to the sound of the seraphim's song, the thresholds begin to shake and tremble, almost as if to bar Isaiah's entrance into God's presence. And the smoke blurs his sight. Because these are the two things lost to humans because of our sin. We cannot see God because of our sin. We cannot be with God because of our sin. If you remember Adam and Eve, they walked in the garden with the Lord. They enjoyed His perfect fellowship. And because of sin, they could not see God or be with God. And Isaiah is told the same thing here. He is barred from the presence of the Lord because of his sin. Because God is holy. See, God created us to dwell with Him, to share in His holiness and to fill the earth with His glory. That's what the angels say in verse 3. That's what we sang earlier in Behold Our God. Let your glory fill the earth. This is what God created us to do. He created us in His image to reflect who He is, to reflect His moral purity in the cosmos, to be lights on the earth that fill it with lights shining off and reflecting the glory of God. But in our sin... That light has become darkness. And instead of populating the earth with the glory of God, we filled it with sin. Instead of reflecting God's glory, we have reflected our own sinfulness so that we neither see God's glory or reflect it to the world around Him. In 1953, the Christian author J.B. Phillips wrote a book with a provocative title, Your God is Too Small. The trouble with many of us today, Phillips writes, is that in varying degrees we suffer from a limited idea of God. I wonder if that describes you today. Is your view of God too small? Have you taken His holiness and transcendence and moral purity for granted? How would we know? How would we know if we have taken God for granted? How would we know if our view of God is too small? Well, it depends on how you respond to Him. How we respond to God is how we know if our view of Him is too small. And that's our second point this morning. We see Isaiah's right response to God's holiness. In times of crisis, what we need most is to recognize God's holiness in order to reckon with our own sinfulness. That's point number two. Reckon with your sinfulness. To reckon with is economic language. Uh, it refers to taking stock of yourself and what you owe. And what Isaiah does in response to recognizing the holiness of God is to stake, take stock of his own holiness in comparison. And he cries out, 
Woe is me! I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. When Isaiah cries out, Woe is me! He's rendering a verdict of judgment and sorrow. The prophets use the language of woe as a, to communicate God's judgment on the enemies of God's people. So just a few chapters earlier, Isaiah had cried out, Woe to the wicked! It shall be ill with him! For what his hands have dealt out shall be done to him! But here, in response to seeing God, Isaiah renders this judgment on himself. He says, woe is me. And this is the right response to recognizing God's holiness. We recognize that I am guilty. I have sinned before God. I fall short. And when he says, I am lost, he's saying he's speechless. He's lost for words. He has been stunned into a sorrowful silence. Why? He explains, for... I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. What does it mean that Isaiah's lips are unclean? Well, most commentators say of this passage that the, the lips aren't being set aside as opposed to the rest of him, but it's kind of like what Jesus says, out of the abundance of the mouth, you see the heart. And so he's saying that all of him, his lips, his words, all of him is unclean. And that's certainly true, but I think there's something else going on here as well. You see, the only other place in Scripture that you see unclean and the lips emphasized side by side is in Leviticus chapter 13. Leviticus 13, verse 45. It's a passage describing how to respond to someone with leprosy. The Levitical laws contained extended provisions for how leprosy was to be dealt with. The leprous person who had this skin disease, which was incurable, was to wear torn clothes, let his hair hang loose, he was to live alone outside the camp, and cover his lip with his finger and call out, Unclean! Unclean! You see, in ancient Israel, to be declared leprous was the closest thing to a death sentence you could face. The leprous person had no contact with family. They had no share in civic or social life. They had no chance to embrace family members. Like I said, the treatment was incurable. It was also a spiritual death sentence. The leprous person had no right to approach the temple. They had no right to gather with the people of God. And what Isaiah is saying here is that in the light of God's holiness, he is like a leprous person. He is unclean. He is unfit to stand in the presence of the Lord. Like the UV lights that doctors use to detect bacteria, otherwise invisible to the naked eye, the light of God's judgment exposes Isaiah's true state. And while the angels cry out their threefold song of praise, holy, 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 
Isaiah, like a disgraced leper, is condemned to cover his lips and cry out, unclean, unclean. There's a worship service going on up there and he's not part of it. The way is blocked. He cannot enter in. And so he cries out, woe is me, I am lost. Friends, this is the only appropriate response to recognizing the holiness of God. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, let me just say welcome. I'm so glad you're here. Perhaps you came with a friend. Perhaps you're here with your family and you don't believe this for yourself yet. Let me just say to you that the first step to believing in the gospel and recognizing who Jesus is is to recognize God's holiness and to reckon with your own sinfulness. Have you done that? Do you see areas of your life where you fall short? Not just of God's standards, but even of your own standards. What do you do with that? Where do you bring that? I hope you see that in a gathering like this, at a church like Millwood, this is not a gathering of people who have it all together. What it means to be a Christian most fundamentally is like Isaiah to recognize God's holiness and your own sinfulness. And so as Christians, we confess our sins to each other. We don't act like we have it all together. We recognize that we are here because we need God's grace. What God is convicting Isaiah of personally here is also, did you notice, applied to the whole people of Israel. He says, I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. He's saying that all of Judah, from the least to the greatest, has become leprous before God. They can only expect to face exile, judgment, away from the presence of the Lord. And what makes this very interesting is that if you notice verse 1, Isaiah situates this prophecy in the context, did you notice? The year that King Uzziah died. Now does anyone know what killed King Uzziah? Leprosy. You see, his death was not just the incidental death of a, another monarch. No, this was a shameful moment in the life of the nation. Their monarch, the king, the one closest to the Lord, has become furthest from the Lord through pride. His whole story is recorded in 2 Chronicles 26. I'd encourage you to look at that later this afternoon. 2 Chronicles 26. He reigned over the southern kingdom of Judah for 52 years. He was a good king. He started well. Second Chronicles tells us that as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. He knew success militarily, advancement politically, prosperity economically. Things were good for Judah. His fame, we're told, spread even to the border of Egypt so that other nations began to pay tribute to Judah. But, we're told in 2 Chronicles 26.16, when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. Isaiah's pride was rooted in his failure to recognize the holiness of God. 
One day Uzziah presumed to enter the temple of the Lord to offer incense that only priests were authorized to do. When the high priest confronted him and warned him and said, please do not do this thing, the king grew angry. And immediately the Lord struck him with leprosy. The priests rushed him out of the temple. And King Uzziah spent the rest of his life separate, away, in his own house, sentenced to the sentence of leprosy for life because he had been proud before the Lord. I wonder how many of you tuned in last month for Queen Elizabeth's funeral. I hear that it may have been the most watched or televised event of all time. I'm personally not a a British royalty junkie. I mean, I think America exists for a reason. Amen? But even I couldn't help but take a little interest in the death of the longest reigning monarch in British history. And what stuck out to me as I watched the funeral was the extravagance. I mean, an estimated quarter million people lined up at Westminster Abbey to pay their respects during the five days before the funeral. Quarter million. Kings, presidents, ambassadors from every country were present. You realize none of that happened to King Uzziah. There were no lengthy proceedings, extended eulogies. No one lined up to pay their respects. There was no procession of mourners. Uzziah died alone. He was buried alone, not in the royal graveyard of his father's, in a separate plot because he was a leper. This was a parable for Israel, and it is a parable for us of the consequences of sin and the holiness of God. You know that famous passage of Isaiah, Isaiah 64, verse 6. Isaiah writes, We have all become like one who is unclean. All our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. He's continuing the motif of leprosy. The whole people of Israel have corporately become like a leprous person and are separated from God. Do you see how Uzziah's life reflected a failure to recognize the holiness of God? So what about you? Have you reckoned with God's holiness? Have you recognized your own sinfulness? Do not wait All of us will have to recognize God's holiness one day. It will either be in this lifetime where there's a chance to repent, or it will be after we are dead and we are standing in the presence of the Lord. Do not wait to repent. But also recognize God's mercy. You see, God does not expose our sinfulness in order to leave us there, He does it to show us His mercy. That's our third point. We need to see from this passage. Receive God's mercy. Isaiah sees God's holiness. He sees his sinfulness, but God does not leave him there. God sends a seraphim to heal him. Look with me again at verses 6 and 7. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth. 
and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. What I want you to see here is that the holy God of Israel takes the initiative in salvation. He doesn't wait for Isaiah to clean himself up, to cure himself, and then come to God. God has to act first. And all the details of this passage are situating us in the context of the temple where God met with his people. You see, the tongs refer to the golden tongs that were used for temple service in Exodus 25. The smoke in verse 4 refers to the incense that would be burnt in order to shield the way for the priest to enter the presence of God. The altar was the place where sacrifices were made. That's because the temple was the meeting place for God and man on the basis of sacrifice. How can a holy God dwell amidst a sinful people through sacrifice? That's what the temple symbolizes. And we are shown all this imagery to be reminded of the temple. But here's the problem. Throughout all the Old Testament laws, anyone and anything that comes into contact with a leprous person immediately became unclean. The Levitical laws contained no instructions for how a leprous person could become clean. There are rules for what to do if a leprous person ceases to be leprous, but there's not a way, there's not a cure. And the law is unmistakable. Contact between the holy and the unclean does not make the unclean clean. It makes the clean unclean. You see this in Numbers 19.22. You see especially in Haggai chapter 2 when the prophet uses this case as an object lesson. Haggai asks the priests if someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil and any kind of food, does that food become holy? The priest answers no. He continues... If someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touch any of these, does it become unclean? The priests say, yes, it becomes unclean. The point is clear. It is very easy to become unclean. Defilement comes easy. But an unclean thing cannot be made clean. So what we expect to happen in this passage is that at the moment that the coal from the altar carried by the seraphim touches Isaiah's lips, what happens? The coal becomes unclean. Isaiah stays unclean. The coal becomes unclean. That's what we expect to happen. But that's not what happens here. The script flips. The most astonishing thing happens. The moment the coal carried by the angel touches Isaiah's lips, something happens that has never happened before on the pages of Scripture. Isaiah becomes clean. His leprous lips become clean. The angel pronounces, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, your sin atoned for. And the question is, how? How does the unclean become clean? How does contact between the coal and the lips make the lips clean? That's the riddle Isaiah is setting up. And throughout the rest of the book, he places hints and clues 
you get glimpses that the Lord will send a servant. This servant will come and He will take away the sins and sicknesses of the unclean people. Until you get to Isaiah 53, which tells us He was despised and rejected by others. A man of suffering, acquainted with infirmity, as one from whom others hid their faces. I couldn't even look at him. He was despised. We held him of no account. Surely he has borne our infirmities and carried our diseases. We accounted him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that has made us whole. And by his bruises we are healed. And the Gospel writers understood this. They understood that Jesus came to bridge the gap between Isaiah 6 and Isaiah 53. John 12 makes this explicit. In John 12, verses 37 to 41, John cites two passages of Scripture side by side. Isaiah 6 and Isaiah 53. And he says, Isaiah said this because he saw his glory. Whose glory? Jesus' glory. The vision that Isaiah has in chapter 6 is a vision of Jesus, the Holy One of the Lord, the One from whom the seraphim hide their faces, is the One who came to bear our burdens and our sorrows. And Jesus came, and the Gospel writers knew this. Matthew, in Matthew chapter 8, as soon as Jesus finishes his sermon on the mount, Jesus comes down from the mountain. And do you know what he finds? He finds a leper. A man who, like Uzziah, spent his whole life alone. Who spent his whole life crying out, Unclean! Unclean! Cannot enter the presence of God. And this leper comes to Jesus. And he kneels before him and says, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus does the unthinkable. He reaches out his hand like the coal from the altar that touched Isaiah's lips and says, I will be clean. And the miracle happens. The clean touches the unclean. And the unclean becomes clean. That evening, Matthew tells us, in verse 16, they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Brothers and sisters, Jesus 
is the coal from the altar, crushed in the furnace of God's judgment to pay the penalty for our sins. To make us who are unclean, to make us clean. To bring us into God's presence. And that hand is outstretched still. Maybe you're here this morning and you've been a Christian for a long time. But there is that sin in your life that you feel you can just not get rid of. And you feel defiled. You believe the gospel, but you don't feel like it's true for you. Brother, sister, that hand is stretched out for you. Take it. Jesus says to you, I will be clean. Maybe you're here this morning and you have a sense of defilement as well, but it's not because of something that you've done, but because of something that someone has done to you. Someone hurt you. Someone took advantage of you. And you can't escape the sense of uncleanness. Brother, sister, Jesus' hands were stretched out on the cross for you. And his hand is held out still. Will you take it? He says to you, I will be clean. Maybe you're here this morning and you've never reckoned with your own sinfulness. You've never recognized God's holiness. All of this is new and you're not sure what to do. Jesus' hand is stretched out for you this morning. Take it. He says to you, I will be clean. He will do it. Will you reckon with God's holiness? Will you recognize your sinfulness? And will you receive His mercy? Let's pray. Lord, we praise You that You, the Holy One, took on our uncleanness on the cross, bearing the punishment for our sins to bring us back to Yourself. We praise You for the hope that we have of dwelling with You forever. We pray that each person this morning would know the power of Your cleansing grace in their lives. And do this for our joy and for Your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.